I want you all to think back a little bit on the Easter Vigil. That release of joy, the return of the Alleluia. Remember your enthusiasm, your physical participation in that joy, and how you shared that joy with the entire church up here around the altar. We may be one of the only churches with a mosh pit on uh, Easter Vigil. And I just can't help but say, Alleluia, the Lord is risen. Today's reading is going to take us on a full circle journey. The journey is at once liturgical, spiritual, communal, and deeply personal. Christ has died. Christ is risen. Christ will come again. The path from grief to joy is universal. It is profoundly human, and it was experienced by Christ himself in the flesh and in the spirit. Jesus' experience of sweating blood in the garden is a human a human response, a human phenomenon associated with intense fear and foreboding is intensely human. The experience was a bodily demonstration of the fear and dread connected to his willing walk to the crucifixion. He experienced the terror and fear of the impending pain of a public execution that would take hours to complete. He also had to endure this pain, the pain it would cause his mother and his friends. A ninth-century Celtic monk says of Jesus, but sore still to him was the grief which for his sake came upon his mother. In hindsight, I believe that one of the things we can confidently say is that Jesus died to bear and remove the curse of hopelessness associated with sin and the unrelenting shame we feel under its weight. He also died to remove sin's evil consequence, the lie that we are in the grip of a condition that cannot be broken, that's the lie. The lie that we were in a grip of a condition that cannot be broken. A kind of despair in our brokenness that we simply must learn to live with. This is not the gospel, folks. Being able to return to joy is a critical part of life, and Jesus went to extraordinary lengths to model this pattern by assisting his beloved disciples back to a place of hope and joy following the resurrection. Better than any other week, we here at Light of Christ walk this Holy Week journey with remarkable competence. As one of the older people in this congregation with experience as a parishioner and a staff person in multiple congregations, I can say that Holy Week at Light of Christ is extraordinary in its presentation. I'm an artist by nature, trained with an eye of what is good drama and what is not. And we at Light of Christ really do understand artistic quality high performance techniques here more than any other church I've been a part of. My last church was a little like this. Extraordinary preparation, expectations of excellence, strong liturgical execution, heightened concerns over presentation, hiring of contractors and to enhance our abilities, and an all-hands-on-deck mentality. I'm just going to ask a quick question. How many of us have been in plays, concerts, musicals, forensics, competitive marching bands, musical competitions, or auditions? How many of you? <laughs> it's a very high percentage of the people who are in our church. It's one of the charisms that we have. In such a small church, it's remarkable. And I'm proud of what we do and enthusiastic about bringing people to, uh, to our services during Holy Week because it's clearly part of what God has called us, called us to do. Part of what we experience after Holy Week is what the apostles experienced after their Holy Week, a form of emotional fatigue, from the roller coaster of presenting this timeless drama. 
So here I am preaching in what our tradition affectionately calls Low Sunday. Like Thomas, after many, after many a joyous Easter, I sometimes look around and wonder what happened. The energy was so high just a few days ago. May remind you that just a very few short days ago, we were lamenting Jesus' death by venerating the cross. One day later, we were proclaiming his resurrection in joy with dancing and singing. There was clearly a sound of joy and exultation. The voice of rejoicing and salvation was heard in the tabernacles of the righteous right here in our church. One of my friends said, who was here for the very first time, wow, is your church always like this? <laughs> Had to be honest and said, not every Sunday. Sometimes the Sunday after Easter is a little like the day after a cast party. Kind of exhausted from the run of performances and spent from the late after party. A little like the morning after the play is done and realizing they have to go back to life as usual, back to the grind, no more intense connection and focus with my friends, no more rehearsals, kind of a time to regroup, stay home, heal up a bit. I would like to remind us that we are talking about the resurrection of Jesus, not the end of the run of a show. The resurrection is not the end, but the beginning. We are called to live in resurrection joy from now on. Jesus is alive. He is here. Alleluia. The Lord is risen. Holy Week is more like a model for how we live and less like a theatrical event we need to recover from. Now, I'm not naive. Uh, through my continuous uh, enthusiasm for the church and fellowship, uh, I am often criticized by the realists. Do not mistake my general enthusiasm for life and the faith for some unrealistic pie-in-the-sky, disconnected, don't-worry-be-happy kind of life. I know that the hour-long frenzy that we do on Easter Vigil cannot be maintained. That energy cannot be maintained for entire life. Life happens. There's a pattern of joy, quiet rest, despair, and return as mature Christians and mature uh, humans that we must learn to negotiate. In the musical The Lion King, we hear it's the circle of life, and it moves us all through despair and hope, through faith and love, till we find our path on the path unwinding in the circle, the circle of life. So what about this rhythm, this rhythm of faith, moving from distress and back to quiet, rest and joy? It is a rhythm of Jesus as he modeled it in Holy Week and Easter, as he facilitated it in the lives of the apostles. In fact, it is at the heart of ministry. As a point I don't want you to miss, it is Jesus who takes us on this journey, not we ourselves. He knows us better than we know ourselves. As such, we need to be open to his mentoring to heal our grief and our deep sadness, our chronic discontent, and all of our comfortability with our distrust of those around us or our skepticism about the world. We were not meant to live in these healthy molds. They are the tools of the enemy. One of the main points of today's gospel is that Jesus did not sit back and wait for the apostles and the women to discover this on their own. Although the women were the first to witness the resurrection, let's not romanticize this. The fact that they were the first witnesses of the resurrection is a grace given by God, not a sign of their superior faith or exceptional openness. Their intention was to anoint the dead body of Jesus, not to see if he was alive. Initially, they were shocked and deeply saddened to find that he was gone. Like the apostles, their first reaction is not one of unbridled joy that Jesus' words were true, but confusion and more pain. 
Scripture says, an angel said to her, woman, why are you weeping? She said to the two angels sitting by the tomb, they've taken away my Lord, and I don't know where he is. Their joy and belief did not, did not emerge until they heard from these angels, these messengers of God. Their first reaction was more distress and disorientation. Poor doubting Thomas, he's always preached about on this day as the one who didn't get it. It's kind of a distortion. None of the people, none of the people in Jesus' circle actually believed prior to a divine intervention. Jesus said before the crucifixion, I will see you again and you will rejoice and no one will take away your joy. All of them had deep challenges believing these words after experiencing his death. What does our gospel say? While they were locked up in fear, he came to them. And what did he say? The first thing Jesus says to them is, peace be with you. Words of comfort, words of calm. Not once, but twice, this simple benediction to bring a sense of calm. They were not mere words. They were spirit-breathed assurances designed to bring comfort, said by the only one who could affect the change in their hearts and minds. This peace is not something they roused in themselves by picking themselves up by their own bootstraps. It was a gift. It was imparted, not rationalized. It was presented to them by God, not figured out. We need to remember that we are not healed by figuring things out. We're healed by being with God. Jesus came through the locked door of their hearts and sat among them. After his resurrection, he spoke, he encouraged, he broke bread, he walked alongside, and he bodily appeared to hundreds of his followers. Not like a ghost, not like a memory, but as the Son of God in their midst. He put their hands on his wounds so they could experience the resurrection of their beloved rabbi. The resurrection of Jesus is to be lived in its fullest reality, not simply accepted as a philosophical principle. Our liturgical phrase is curiously written. It says Christ is is risen. Yep, is risen. Not did rise, is risen. We start out by saying Christ has died historically, and then we say Christ is risen presently. He is risen. He is here. He is present to heal, present to comfort and encourage and to walk alongside. The resurrection is not a philosophical point in our religious tradition. It is the foundational truth of our faith. In our midst, as one who longs for you to know him, who is glad to be with you, who is willing to put your hands in his side so that you will know in your heart that it is Jesus who is alive. This is the fuel for our faith, not the story, but the resurrected Lord, the person of Jesus, Emmanuel, God with us. Hallelujah. The Lord is risen. He is risen indeed. Hallelujah. Can you imagine the apostles' first reaction after they got over the initial shock of seeing Jesus in that room? I don't know if I can. It was a joy of sorts. They loved him. They were grieving their loss of him. And the scripture says that they were afraid. The door was locked for fear. Their joy joy was restored by Jesus himself, not like a cheerleader at a ball game. They didn't jump off the floor and start cheering cheering like they'd experienced the winning touchdown at a Super Bowl. No, it was more subtle than that. 
Jesus was breaking in to their unbelief. He healed their distress like a loving mother to her child by talking with them, by speaking with them, by giving them words of comfort. And little by little, their self-image as ones chosen to be with God was being restored by his presence. These believers were not standing on the word in some abstract way. They were not being restored. They were being restored by his presence, by a face-to-face relationship with the resurrected Jesus. We need to encounter the living God to stay connected to our joy. Our joy is in the Lord, not in our belief in him. It's really an important concept. It's not in our ability to understand, but more like a child in the loving arms of God. The grief and abandonment felt like the apostles was not assuaged by a philosophy about the resurrection. It's a point we shouldn't gloss over. They were told that he would come back. They were told by Jesus himself, I will return and complete your joy. It didn't assuage their fear. Seeing Jesus die on a cross and buried in the ground made it very hard to believe those words. The words themselves did not change their hearts. The Bible teaches that they felt vulnerable, grief-stricken, lost, and confused by the words they heard and all the things they saw. This explains their fear a little more rationally. They didn't have a 2,000-year opportunity to look behind them and go, oh, we know this story. We know how it goes. They were experiencing it firsthand in real time. So what does it mean to return to joy? Not in some kind of get-over-it kind of way, but in a healing that leads to the unbridled joy of the resurrection. One of my friends and former priest was fond fond of saying we're a resurrection people. Paul says, if Jesus was not raised from the dead, then we are of all people most to be pitied. But what if he did? Are we then the most to be infused with power and empowered with joy, a joy, Jesus said, that no one can take away, a joy that inspired the apostles? I think so. I talk to people at the Racine Vocational Ministry where I work all the time who are overwhelmed. I hear phrases like, well, I'm a realist. I can't deny what I see, what I have experienced, and how I know it really is out there. They will say things to me like, I'm just not like you. I feel like part of my message today is that despair, chronic disappointment, dissatisfaction, and hopelessness are not personality types. This condition is not about being real, and it's not spiritual maturity. Mostly it is rooted in the belief of lies, a distortion of how the faith informs our future, a future that God only knows, and it's a debilitating lack of healing and understanding concerning our past. Daily I hear from people how tired they are, how they feel disconnected. I can hear the profound lack of hope and how they intend to mutter through in a state of chronic disappointment. I can feel their despair. They long for relief, but they insist on seeing life through their distorted vision, through their wounds and perceived weaknesses. They expect God to relate to them in the way they are relating to the world. I'm here to affirm that God died to heal this way of living, not to affirm it. As I said a few weeks ago, God did not come to meet our expectations. He came to heal us. We need to be awake to God's movement and less less driven by a need for a kind of safety around our lives that's just not possible. Or a deep sense that whatever we have been saddled with, we must simply endure and just muddle on. The resurrection is the fulfillment of the psalm that says, joy cometh in the morning. 
<laughs> Hallelujah. <laughs> Feeling the spirit of, of, uh, of Mark, uh, Deacon Mark a little bit, uh, Venerable Mark. We experience this now in the person of the Holy Spirit who lives in us. John 14 says, I will ask the Father and he will give you another helper to be with you forever, the spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him or knows him. I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. Yet a little while and the world will see me no more, but you will see me. Why? Because I live. You will also live. He also says, I will see you again and you will rejoice and no one, no one will take away your joy. This is the promise Jesus made to the disciples and it's his promise to us. Christ will come again. Do we believe this? Do we live as if it's true? We are living in the age of the Holy Spirit, the age of his mighty works through us, and the age of Advent where we wait for his imminent return. Advent is not simply a liturgical season. It's not something we just do until Christmas comes. Christ will come again is a life orientation. It is a faithful posture towards God's view of creation and order. It is not a rote phrase we shout and then get on with our broken lives and shattered dreams. It is a way of living. This liturgical, liturgical response, Christ will come again, is not something we act out and move on from. God expects us to be living in anticipation of Christ's return and the never-ending joy of his unhindered presence. Christ will come again. So what does it mean to be in a perpetual advent, expectantly waiting? It's a little like a mother waiting for a baby to be born. I know we have several young moms here. Not been too long away. Expectant mothers rarely forget they're pregnant. Seems obvious. They feel movements. They experience discomfort. They feel the daily differences in their bodies. They might be able to deny their circumstances for a moment or two to accomplish a task or to get something done at work or to experience a conversation with a friend, but they always come back, back to the reality of their inevitable expectations. And although they may have some distress or wonderments about the process, I can say, after ha having four sons, my wife never said to me, you know what, I forgot I was pregnant today. <laughs> it never happened in my house. I bet it didn't happen in yours either. Another aspect of expectations is the mother's longing to see the face of their child, to look into their eyes, to touch their little hands and feet and to hold them in their arms. I'm a little jealous that I was not able to experience that in my body, a little. I'm pretty sure I don't want to experience the pain of childbirth or nine months of constant changes in my body and the challenges that come along with pregnancy. God bless you, Jane. <laughs> but the truth is, being pregnant and giving birth is a deep spiritual learning that grounds mothers to the lives of their children in a way that I can barely imagine. Pregnancy enables a unique perspective of what it means to wait, to wait in joy for the greater joy to come to be patient, knowing that there might be challenges that have to, be, have to be endured, but all in the context of a greater joy to come. We are all asked to live in this manner, and moms, we may need your insight to fully understand what it means for our daily lives. You all have lived it in ways that the rest of us are just not capable of. Mothers of Light of Christ, teach us to wait.
Teach us to wait. Pray for us to know what you have learned. Help us to know that the pains and difficulties of this present life are part of a greater joy to come. They are part of a greater joy. But also the reality of the unimaginable joy to come that it is infinitely more than we can ask or imagine. Yes, Christ will come again. But the point of faith is that he has been raised from the dead. He is here, he is with us. And that if we are open to being with him, we, like the apostles and heirs of his promise, I will see you again and you will rejoice and no one will take away your joy. Part of that unimaginable joy is here now. We experienced it on Saturday and we experienced it here on Low Sunday. <laughs> Hallelujah. <laughs> we, like the apostles, must be open to when Jesus walks through the doors of our unlocked hearts to say to us, peace be with you. To hear him say, I have come that none will take away your joy. We will have hardships, disappointments, loss, grief, shame, but in Jesus we have an ever-present path back to joy. That's really important to remember. In Jesus, we have an ever-present path back to joy. Always. It's always there. It's always available. And this, this joy is not as an escape, but as a healing. It's not just surface happiness, but a deep abiding joy that transcends all life circumstances. Jesus says also in John, in the world you will have hard trials. But be of good cheer. I have overcome the world. I would also like to point out how the apostles changed after Pentecost. Let's look at our reading from Acts. Joy and confidence in God's presence is clearly what is going on in the apostles all throughout the book of Acts. Their joy could not be taken away. They were witnesses in a very hostile environment, but I'm pretty sure their joy is what was compelling people to listen. Their passion and enthusiasm uh, for what they had seen and what they had experienced was a major driver here. How do I know that? It's the testimony of the scripture. In another place in Acts, in chapter 16, uh, Paul and Silas were in prison, and the first thing we hear about them being in prison is that they're singing hymns. <laughs> I don't know about your experience in prison or of people you know who have been there. That's not all that common. And this wasn't a very nice place. There were no clean sheets. There was no running water in these ancient prisons. They were horrible places to be. And yet Paul and Silas are singing. And suddenly there was an earthquake and the foundations were shaken. Immediately all the doors fell open and everybody's bonds fell off their hands. The jailer was so upset that he was ready to kill himself because he knew that if these folks had escaped, his life was on the line from his superiors. But Paul cries out with a loud voice and says, we're all here. The jailer called for lights and rushed in. And trembling with fear, the scripture says, he fell down before Paul and Silas. After this, the jailer's family were all baptized. I want you to wrap your brain around that a little bit. They were all in prison singing. It says all of the prisoners were listening. Paul and Silas' joy and faith were impacting others, and it set in motion the conversion of the jailer's family. Paul's testimony was not, these beds are really uncomfortable and your beatings aren't really helping me since they focused on my ministry. <laughs> what do you think the jailer would have responded to that? How would he have responded? But you know, no one could take away their joy. It didn't matter where they were. The joy could not be taken away. 
Their joy was not rooted in the right thinking or their perfect theology or even the condition of their body. It was in the Lord. Their joy was in the Lord. It is clear that their circumstances did not impede their joy or their ministry. Paul says later, I have learned to be content whatever the circumstances. I know what it is to be in need. I know what it is to have plenty. I have learned the secret of being content in every, any and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want. He also says in Philippians, rejoice in the Lord always, not sometimes, not when the conditions are right. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I say rejoice. The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your request be made known unto God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will keep your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Paul showed us how to do this. Silas showed us how to do this, even in prison. Are we ready for this kind of gospel joy? In Revelation, we hear, to him who loves us and freed us from our sins by his blood and made us to be a kingdom of priests to our God and Father. Do you ever think of yourselves that way? A kingdom of priests? I don't think we do. I think sometimes we come to church thinking, I'm going to hear a good sermon, I'll go back on with my life, and hopefully I get enough infusion and enough joy that I'll just have a good week. No, you're being sent from this church to minister Christ's presence to the world out there. You're being sent every week to be commissioned into, into the ministry to which God is calling you. A kingdom of priests, I love that phrase. Can I hear an amen to that? <laughs> it says later in the same reading that we just read, look, he is coming with clouds, every eye will see him, even those who pierced him, and on account of him, all the tribes of the earth will wail, so it can be. I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, the one who is to come, the Almighty. So it says in the Collect that we first read early that we want to show forth the faith in our lives, what we profess. We want to show forth in our lives what we profess by our faith. It is one thing to have a momentary joy in a celebration, like Jesus' triumphal entry into Jerusalem or our wonderful Easter vigil. But how do we live in joy and focus like the apostles in Acts, in good times and in bad, knowing that God is within us and beside us no matter what our circumstances are, serving him by serving others? We live it by walking with Jesus, by daily opening the door to him and letting him in, by asking him to shape our beliefs and heal our wounds, by being with the community of believers, by finding a mentor, and listening and learning by being a mentor and supporting others, by allowing Jesus to be our joy and refusing to be driven by our broken thoughts and low expectations, by allowing God to show us how he sees ourselves and the others around us and dropping the arrogance and dependence on our own way of seeing the world around us, desiring and praying for God's sight. Did you ever pray for that? Lord, help me see the world as you see it. Do you want to get after your children and say, Lord, you've got to help me. <laughs> Let me see what you see. Give me some empathy. Give me some strength. And not so much relying on our realistic, realistic observations. It's not easily done. This is a challenge we tend to deeply embrace with our broken ideas of how the world works. 
Frankly, I think many of us trust our view more than God's. We may want to default back to more comfortable, distorted patterns rather than let Jesus intervene. We need to let him intervene in our lives like the apostles experienced. The gospel is full of examples. There is no shame in being a work in progress. No shame in being a work in progress. Experiencing doubt and fear is part of our fallen world. Our call is to let Jesus heal us, not to wallow in our distortions and certainly not to romanticize them to see them for what they are, and let Jesus heal them. Jesus is calling us to greater understanding, a greater light. Are you ready? Are you ready to live as if Christ will come again, as if he is risen, as if you were in eager expectation that he could arrive at any moment, as if his spirit is living in you? Like Paul and Silas and the apostles in today's readings, are you ready to allow God to bring you, even from prison and grief, to sing hymns, and share Christ in his power with those around you, in season and out of season. One of the most beautiful parts of the gospel story is that of Thomas. Thomas was a realist for sure. Unless I see his hands in the mark of the nails, place my hands in his side, I will not believe. He may be the patron saint of realists, but Jesus came to him and met him where he was. To me, that's the beauty of the story. In his moment of clarity, I can almost see Thomas, like the father of the boy with an unclean spirit, falling to his knees and saying, I believe, Lord, help my unbelief. Again, one of the foundational truths shared here is that none of them could experience the joy of the resurrection until they experienced Jesus. Jesus in their midst is what convinced them that the resurrection was real. We are being called to a glorious life one of faith, hope, and love. We're being called to live out our mission to reflect the light of Christ's love, hope, and healing. Are you ready to go on this journey together to bring the risen Christ to the lost and the lonely, to break every chain in the power of Jesus, to go out into the world rejoicing in the power of the Holy Spirit, The risen Lord was the answer to the disciples' overwhelming feelings of grief, abandonment, and despair. He was also the power behind their joy and their ministries. We walk in this tradition. He called them and is calling you. Hallelujah. The Lord is risen. Hallelujah.